Welcome to Religion and Science. Welcome also to Religious Studies 241 and Philosophy 204 at Chico State University. I'm Greg Kutsona. And today I'm going to look at Charles Darwin and the effect of Darwinism and Darwin's theories and then evolutionary theory as it developed later on religion, especially in the United States. I'm going to begin by reading from my book, Negotiating Science and Religion in America. Certainly, Darwinian evolutionary thought challenged the heretofore reigning Christian narrative of a creation out of nothing as the spontaneous creation of Adam and Eve and their uniqueness as animals bearing the divine image. It questioned William Paley's 1802 watchmaker analogy in his book, Natural Theology, as a means to secure a legitimate place for natural theology, that is, a way to find about God's existence and attributes without recourse to special revelation. The easy association of God's character and the natural world that had dominated the dialogue of 19th century England and America through Paley and his Bridgewater treaties became problematized. Science, once the friend of Christian belief, became a much more complicated companion and began to utter quips through Darwin such as, quote, clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature, end of quote. To this, to this extent, Edward Larson is correct. By replacing the divine creator with a survival, survival of the fittest process as the immediate designer of species, Darwin's theory undermined natural theology. This carried cultural significance in the English-speaking world, where natural theology served as an organizing concept in science and an intellectual prop for Protestant theology. But of course, that narrative is too easy, as the philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead once quipped, seek simplicity and distrust it. Darwin played a role, but he wasn't the first one on the stage. Even if Paley dominated the conversation in the English and American world, David Hume had already managed to strike at the tree of natural theology with a mortal blow in his 1776 dialogues concerning natural religion with his objections, philosophical objections to Paley. Hume also rekindled the debate about final causation that Aristotle had presented and whether God is properly a part of science or we could quote Pierre Laplace's famous declaration to Napoleon in 1802 about whether the deity could be found in his scientific equations. Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. And that ends the quote for the moment. I will say that this will be a little bit more wide-ranging uh, conversation um, than the, the podcast to date because there's just so much material here. Richard Dawkins has given a provocative quote. Richard Dawkins, the, famu the famous um, uh, biologist, uh, zoologist, he says this, Although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And so I ask you, when the topic of evolution comes to mind, what, do you think, what are you thinking about? What words do you associate with it? 
And if you know the text of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 from the early part of the Bible, the first pages of the Bible, does this conflict with, is it independent from, or does it integrate with modern science? And what do you think are the implications for religion and science? So on the way to talking about Darwin, I want to say there are two major books that I recommend. The first is from Edward Larson, Evolution, The Remarkable History of a Scientific Theory, and then the book by Desmond and Moore, Darwin, The Life of a Tormented Evolutionist. What are the precedents? I can hardly say it. What are the precedents to evolution? It's really important to understand that throughout most of Western history, it was commonly thought that species always existed in their current state. Aristotle, who I've already mentioned in this podcast, from who lived from about 384 to 322 before the Common Era, believed that the world eternally existed as it is. And the Bible was interpreted as stating creations beginning about 4,000 before the Common Era. Actually, in 1654, the famous Bishop Usher made a, a statement about the about creation and said that it occurred in 4004 before the common era about 6000 years ago and so that we don't get too uh, frustrated with usher and you know make him the bad guy only it's uh, important to say that Isaac Newton apparently had about the same date for the beginning of creation which of course is carried forward in some people in the United States today So listen to the text of Genesis 1. The key text is the first chapter at the first verse through the second chapter in the third verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind, which can also be translated as spirit from God, swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In the second day, and now I'm paraphrasing, God separates the waters, the dome of the waters below and above, um, in the heavens and then on earth. And then on the third day, God says, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And the dry land is called earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. This is verse 10 of chapter 1. On the fourth day, God creates the lights. Verse 14, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for your ears and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. In verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then on the sixth day, there's the creation of all animals, including human beings. Starting at verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind, And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind, or in Hebrew, Adam, Adam. God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day in all the work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh, or literally in Hebrew, the Sabbath day. God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So how do you interpret those verses? I go back to my question. Are those descriptions of modern science that would uh, be an alternative to science? Are they independent from, collaborative with? I would encourage you to... um, well, we're going to look at this, but to look at some of the modern uh, versions of interpreting this text. Of course, we have the conservative, highly conservative literalist versions and people like Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis. But in the um, evangelical Christian organization, BioLogos, you can see uh, on their website and other places some contemporary views of Genesis 1, that this text was not meant to be a scientific text, and indeed it couldn't be, because uh, the science would have made no sense at the time. But moving on, there were some precedents to evolution. There was first Thomas Malthus, from, who, uh, his dates are 1766 to 1834, and he had this idea in the essay on the principle of population, that there is an increasing population and it limited food supply of uh, the limited food supply would lead to a struggle for existence. And then there was, of course, George Cuvier, sometimes referred to as the father of paleontology. He established extinction as a fact using floods as a cause, which got in the way and began to undermine the idea that all animals has existed through all time. And then Charles Lyell. Uh, whose dates are 1797 to 1875. Uh, By the way, Cuvier was 1769 to 1832. But Lyell had this idea of uniformitarianism, that the Earth is shaped by the same processes that are in operation today, and therefore it's over 300 million years old. So this led to seeing a uniform pattern that could be understood as natural history. 